2, The Sea Cook. Chapter 7, I Go to Bristol. It was longer than the squire imagined ere we were ready for the sea, and none of our first plans, not even Dr. Livesey's, of keeping me beside him could be carried out as intended. The doctor had to go to London for a physician to take charge of his practice. The squire was hard at work in Bristol, and I lived on at the hall under the charge of old Redbreath. The, green, the gamekeeper, almost a prisoner, but full of sea dreams and the most charming anticipations of strange islands and adventures. I brooded by the hour together over the map, all the details of which I well remembered. Sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, I approached that island in my fancy from every possible direction. I explored every acre of its surface. I climbed a thousand times to that tall hill they called the spyglass from the top enjoyed the most wonderful and changing prospects. Sometimes the island was thick with savages with whom we fought and sometimes full of dangerous animals that hunted us. But in all my fancies, nothing occurred to me so strange and tragic as our actual adventures. So the weeks passed on till one fine day, there came a letter addressed to Dr. Livesey and this edition to be opened in the case of his absent by Tom Redruth or young Hawkins. Obeying this order, we found, or rather I found, for the gamekeeper was a poor hand at reading, anything but print, the following important news. Old Anchor Inn, Bristol, March 1st. Dear Lipsy, as I do not know whether you are at the hall or still in London, I send this in double to both places. The ship is bought and fitted. She lies at anchor ready for sea. You've never imagined a sweeter schooner. A child might sail her. 200 tons. The name Hispaniola. I got her through my old friend Blandley, who has proved himself throughout the most surprising trump. The admirable fellow literally slaved in my interest, and so I may say did everyone in Bristol as soon as they got wind of what port we sailed for. Treasure, I mean. Red Ruth, I said, interrupting the letter. Dr. Livesey will not like that. The squire has been talking after all. Well, who's the better right, growled the gamekeeper. A pretty rum go if the squire ain't to talk for Dr. Livesey, I should think. At that, I gave up all attempt at commentary and read straight on. Blandley himself found the Hispaniola and by the most admirable management got her for the merest cost. There is a class of men in Bristol monstrously prejudiced against Blandley. They go the length of declaring that this honest creature would do anything for money, that the Hispaniola belonged to him, and that he sold it to me absurdly high, the most transparent calumnies. None of them dare, however, deny the quality of the ship. So far, there was not a hitch. The work people, to be sure, the rigors and whatnot, were most annoyingly slow, but time cured that. It was the crew that troubled me. I wished a round score, 20, of men, in case of natives, buccaneers, or the odious French, and I had the worry of the deuce itself to find so much as a half a dozen men till the most remarkable stroke of fortune brought me the very man I required. As I was standing on the dock, when by the merest accident I fell into talk with him, I found he was an old sailor, kept a public house, knew all the seafaring men in Bristol, had lost his health ashore, and wanted a good berth as a cook to go to sea again. He hobbled down there that morning, he said, to get the smell of sea salt. 
I was monstrously touched, and so would you have been. And out of pure pity, I engaged him on the spot to be the ship's cook. Long John Silver, he is called, and he has lost a leg. But that I regarded as a recommendation since he lost it in his country's service under the immortal English Admiral Hawk. He has no pension, Lipsy. Imagine the age we live in. Well, sir, I thought not I'd only found a cook, but it was a crew I discovered. Between Silver and myself, we got together in a few days a company of the toughest old salts imaginable. Not pretty to look at, but fellows by their faces of the most brave spirit. I declare we could fight a warship. Long John even got rid of two out of the six or seven I had already hired. He showed me in a moment that they were just the sort of freshwater swabs we had to fear in an adventure of our importance. I am in the most magnificent health and spirits, eating like a bull, sleeping like a tree, yet I shall not enjoy a moment till I hear my old sails tramping around the capstan. Seaward ho, hang the treasure. It's the glory of the sea that has turned my head. So now, Lipsy, come post. Do not lose an hour if you respect me. Let young Hawkins go at once to see his mother with Redruth for a guard, and then both come full speed to Bristol. John Trelawney. Postscript, I did not tell you that Blandley, who, by the way, is to send a group after us if we don't turn up by the end of August, had found an admirable fellow for a sailing master, a stiff man, which I regret, but in all the other respects, the captain is a treasure. Long John Silver unearthed a very competent man for a first mate, a man named Arrow. I have a bosun who pipes, Livesey, so things shall go man-of-war fashion on board the good ship Hispaniola. I forgot to tell you that Silver is a man of substance. I know of my own knowledge that he has a bank account, which has never been overdrawn. He leaves his wife to manage the inn, and she is a woman who can be trusted. A pair of old bachelors like you and I may be excused for guessing that it is the wife quite as much as his health that sends him out to sea. P.P.S. Hawkins may stay one night with his mother. You can fancy the excitement into which the letter put me. I was half beside myself with glee, and if I ever despised a man, it was old Tom Redruth, who could do nothing but grumble and moan. Any of the other gamekeepers would gladly have changed places with him. But such was not the squire's pleasure, and the squire's pleasure was like the law among them all. Nobody but old Redruth would have dared so much to even grumble. The next morning, he and I set forth for the Admiral Bembo Inn, and there I found my mother in good health and spirits. The captain, who had been so long a cause of so much discomfort, was gone where the wicked ceased from the troubling. The squire had everything repaired in the public rooms and the sign repainted and added some furniture. Above all, a beautiful armchair for mother in the bar. He found her a boy as an apprentice also that she would not need want for help while I was gone. It was on seeing 
that boy that I understood for the first time my situation. I had thought up to that moment of the adventures before me, not of all the home that I was leaving. And now the sight of this clumsy stranger who was to stay here in my place beside my mother, I had my first attack of tears. I am afraid I led that boy a dog's life, for as he was new to the work, I had a hundred opportunities of setting him straight and putting him down, and I was not slow to profit by them. The night passed, and the next day after dinner, Red Ruth and I were afoot again and on the road. I said goodbye to Mother and the cove where I had lived since I was born, and our dear old inn, Admiral Bembo, since he was repainted no longer quite so dear. One of my last thoughts was of the captain, Billy Bones, who so often walked the beach with his hat, with his saber-cut cheek, his old brass telescope. Next moment we had turned the corner, and my home was out of sight. The stage picked us up at dusk at the Royal George Inn. I was wedged in between Redruth and a stout old gentleman, and in spite of the swift motion in the cold night air, I must have slept a great deal from the very first, and then slept like a log up a hill and down through stage after stage after stage. For when I was awakened at last, it was by a punch in the ribs, and I opened my eyes to find that we were standing still before a large building in a city street, and that the day had already broken a long time ago. Where are we, I asked. Bristol, said Tom, get down. Mr. Trelawney had taken up his residence at an inn far from the docks to superintend the work upon the boat. We had to walk on our way to my great delight, along the harbor ports beside the great multitude of ships of all sizes and nations. In one, the sailors were singing at their work, and another, there were men high up, high over my head, hanging to the threads that seemed no thicker than a spider's web. Though I had lived by the shore all my life, I seemed never to have been near the sea till then. The smell of tar and salt was something new to me. I saw the most wonderful figureheads carved on the front of the ships. I saw beside them many old sailors with rings in their ears and whiskers curled in tight ringlets and pigtails and their swaggering clumsy sea walk. If I had seen so many kings or archbishops, I could not have been more delighted. And I was going to see myself, to see in a schooner with a piping bosun, a pigtail singing seaman, to see bound for an unknown island, to look for buried treasures. And while I was still in this delightful dream, we came suddenly in front of a large inn and met Squire Trelawney, all dressed out like a sea officer in stout blue cloth, coming out of the door with a smile on his face and a capital imitation of a sailor's walk. Here you are, he cried, and the doctor came last night from London. Bravo, the ship's company is complete. Oh, sir, cried I, when do we sail? Sail, says he, we sail tomorrow.